Coming up in episode 86 of the Dan Cave. Finally, we talk some baseball. Plans for the season are still up in the air, but we do have a draft to look forward to. With just two weeks until the event, I'll get you up to speed with details on the three prospects most likely to be the Mariners' choice with the number six overall pick on June 10th. As for the Seahawks, it's time for my off-season grades. How has general manager John Schneider fared between free agency and the draft? Well, let's just hope he's not listening to this. I'll also give you my take on a popular social media topic from the last week. Who is the greatest American rock band of all time? Dan Answer and more up next in the Dan Cave. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vies. Welcome back, cave dwellers. After a week off, the Dan Cave is back with episode 86. Um, how many of you watched the live golf event on Sunday? Um, and <laughs> follow-up question, how 2020 is it that we finally get live golf, the uh, the match between Phil Mickelson, Tiger Woods, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, and uh, and it pours rain the whole time. Um, very, very 2020 um, of that. News breaking left and right today. Uh, as far as baseball goes, the latest proposal from the owners uh, being presented to the players, uh, being presented in some circles, it's being characterized as take it or leave it. Uh, if that's the case, we're not going to have a baseball season this year. We're not going to talk about that because I want to keep things positive. Uh, here's some positive news, though. We may have football all through the fall and the spring. Uh, NFL owners still confident that we'll have a full season with fans in the stands. Um this fall, uh, which is great, if which would be great if it happens, um, but also the XFL is not dead. Um, it's in bankruptcy court, and uh, a report this week that dozens of potential buyers have filled out the paperwork to place bids on it. Uh, that's supposed to happen in August, um, and more than a dozen of those have, have already gotten to the point where they've signed non-disclosure agreements to, to look at all the financials. Um, there was also a report that that um, Vince McMahon had already set up uh, and made sure that all the stadium leases were intact for 2021, and actually he just dropped out of the bidding. There was uh, it looked like he was basically trying to buy back the league for pennies on the dollar and, and rid himself of the debt. Um, they were certainly a victim of the pandemic. Um, I don't think anyone doubts that, that season was going to make it all the way through and to its championship and possibly build some momentum there near the end. Um, so they were impacted by this as much as any league. But there's some value there. They showed enough in five weeks uh, with that TV contract and the way they presented the games and the talent on the field and some of the unique and innovative rule changes, uh, some of which are being voted on this week and next by the NFL that might be adopted as far as um, uh, getting rid of the onside kick and some of those things. And then there's a report today from Jason Lockenfora of CBS Sports. Um, well, it's a not a report as much as it's a suggestion that the NFL should be one of those bidders. And I hadn't even thought of that up until this point. And usually that's the kind of thing that I do think of. Maybe I'm my, my sports brain is atrophying these days uh, due to lack of activity, but um, makes a ton of sense. And, and the point he makes um, is, uh, and he gives credit where credit's due. He says this isn't his idea. He heard it from an agent. He says, hey, the NFL uh, has really been struggling with how 
to encourage more minority hiring at the GM and head coaching level, what better way uh, than to use the XFL for that while also developing young talent at a time when practice time is being cut back even more with the new CBA. And so young players aren't developing if they're not good enough to get on the field uh, as rookies. Um, makes a lot of sense. There's no word on whether they are one of the bidders, um, but let's hope that they are. Uh, but we may have XFL to look forward to in the spring as well. Uh, but we're going to talk about some baseball because we haven't really had the opportunity to um, for the last couple of months. Ever since they shut down spring training, there just hasn't been a lot of news. You know, they put a moratorium on on player personnel moves, so there can't be any trades. Um, there was talk of getting rid of the draft altogether. And, and despite the the uh, less than optimistic um, and encouraging signs coming out of Major League Baseball these days uh, on how they're going to try to move forward with the season this year. Um, and, and if you ever had any doubts uh, that Major League Baseball is poorly run from the top, um, this is shining a microscope directly on that shortcoming because um, basically... The players thought they had a deal in place uh, with prorated salaries on a shortened season, and now the owners have appeared to come back this week and uh, renege on that deal and offer one um, for pennies even on those dollars, and in particular with how it relates to minor league baseball players. Um, Let's just say it's gotten bad enough that minor league baseball players and and their agents are trying to figure out how they can qualify for unemployment um, because uh, the fact that they're under contract... um, uh, they don't normally qualify for unemployment. That's how bad it's got. Anyway, I want to focus on what we do know and what we can look forward to and what is set in stone, and that is this uh, COVID-abbreviated draft coming up on June 10th. Five rounds, five rounds only. The Mariners will have six picks because of the pick they acquired um, in the Omar Narvaez trade, so they have a sandwich pick as well, um, and so that gives them more bonus pool money, more flexibility, Um and, and things of that nature. And and as we get closer to the draft, um, things always start to become clearer. Um, and this draft has evolved quite a bit over the last few months. Uh, a year ago, uh, experts were saying that this was one of the strongest drafts in a long time. And in particularly at the top, in, in particular, <laughs> at the top, um, and in particular with college pitching. And so if you're a Mariner fan, you're thinking, well, that's great. We have the sixth pick. Uh, You can never have too much pitching. They need more high-end pitching prospects in the organization, even though that position has uh, improved dramatically in the last couple seasons. Um, You can always add to that. So great. Falls right into their wheelhouse. Let's get a future potential ace to add to Logan Gilbert and some of the other guys they have um, at number six. But then a couple things happen. Um, First, JT Ginn, who was going to be in that conversation of being in the top five or six, um, got injured, had Tommy John surgery. He's out. Uh, he'll get drafted, but it will happen much later. And then um, the shortened season created some question marks on guys. Um, guys that got off to great starts. Um, scouts aren't sure if they can trust what they're seeing. Um, other guys that were highly rated um, had less than stellar performances in their shortened seasons. Um, so a lot less information to go on. Um, high school seasons have been wiped out. So just makes for a very interesting draft to say the least. But I think we've gotten some clarity in the last week or so on um, 
who is going to be there for the Mariners at six, and also who they may be targeting. Um, and so I thought I would narrow that down because I think three now have risen above them all to be the most realistic, um, the most plausible, and uh, make the most sense for the Mariners, for sure. And so I thought I would uh, kind of introduce them to you. We'll we'll play a little game of getting to know uh, the Mariners' three top draft prospects. Um, and we're going to start with Nick Gonzalez, um, second baseman, New Mexico State. 5'10", 190 pounds. Now, right there, right off the bat, you think, God, is that really what we're looking at for the sixth pick in what's supposed to be a strong draft? I mean, I don't know how excited I can get about that. And and when I first heard that, I felt the same way. Um, about a month, six weeks ago, he clearly had established himself among mock drafters and, and baseball analytic websites and, uh, and, and among baseball writers and analysts as someone who had gotten clearly into the top 10. And then he started being attached um, uh, more more directly to the Mariners, more tangibly to the Mariners, for a couple of reasons. One is the top college starting pitchers were gone um, in most people's minds by number six. And so to take a pitcher from the next tier, um, like a Reed Detmers or a Garrett Crochet um, or a Cade Cavalli, would would constitute a reach in most people's opinions. So to go to the college position player route made sense. The other thing was Jerry Depoto on his own podcast a couple of weeks ago said that they were targeting and looking more closely at up the middle defenders catcher, second base, shortstop, center field, uh, that they saw a lot of value there matching up with the number six pick. Um, A lot of people took that, and myself included, to mean that's what they were focused in on and planning to do with the pick. Um, Since then, there's been speculation that he was saying that because that's what he saw happening, and that's what was going to be available to them, and so that might have been his way of, first of all, he's always been very transparent and above board with with what he's thinking, Um, but also he may have been, you know, kind of trying to set some expectations that, you know, hey, if, if you're thinking pitcher, we may go a different direction. But it was starting to be a pretty common match with Gonzalez and the Mariners. There were reports that he was looking, they were looking strongly directly at him. This wasn't just speculation, um, but that also he would fall into that range. So I started looking more closely at him, um, listening to the opinions of people I trust, uh, watching video, just reading everything I can get my hands on. And um, here's who Nick Gonzalez is, and I'll let you decide how you feel about him. 5'10", 190-pound second baseman. He's listed as a second base shortstop. Most scouts believe he's not, uh, doesn't, won't have the range to stick at shortstop in the major leagues. Obviously, his value would be much greater if he could, but most see him as a an adequate second base defender. Defense isn't his forte. He has been called by many the safest pick in the draft because he's going to hit. This is the dude's career line at New Mexico State. In 596 plate appearances, 399 batting average, 39 doubles, 37 home runs, 
a 502 on base percentage, walked 89 times to only 79 strikeouts in his college career. His power is developing. Of those 37 home runs, 12 of them came in his uh, the, the shortened season before it was shut down this year in just 82 plate appearances. Um, in fact, I think um, off the top of my head, he had a double header uh, or a weekend series where he hit uh, five or six home runs. Um, he has always been knocked for level of competition deficiencies at both the college level, not playing in one of the, the premier divisions uh, or conferences, and also in high school, that he, he wasn't recruited that heavily, didn't get a lot of big offers. Uh, uh, that's always been the knock on him. But then he went to the Cape Cod League last summer, and he won league MVP honors. And if you're unfamiliar with the Cape Cod League, it's a summer off-season league that some of the elite college players play in, and they play with wooden bats. And he hit 351 with a 451 on base percentage, slugged 630, and won league MVP honors with a wooden bat. And that's that's where he really jumped into not only the first round com- conversation, but the top of the first round conversation. So how you feel about him as a prospect um, depends on how much value you give to power. He's seen as a guy that may get you 15 to 18 home runs. Some think there might be a little more pop in that bat. He may put it all together and and have a 20 or 25 home run season from time to time, but he's going to hit a lot of doubles. He's going to get on base at a high rate. He's not going to strike out. He's going to hit. His floor is as high as any prospect in this draft. Nick Gonzalez is very unlikely to be a bust. Now, the cynical Mariner fan may say, well, that's what they said about Dustin Ackley. Um, True. Ackley, we all know, was rushed, wasn't developed properly, and also had a what is now uh, legendary um, piss-poor approach to uh, refining his game wouldn't take any suggestions, uh, thought he knew it all, uh, was hard to work with. Um, By all accounts, Nick Gonzalez is the opposite of that. Jim Rat uh, loves the game, um, really passionate about it. So if he's the pick and you wanted pitching, understandable, but understand also that... um, this guy's timeline to get to the big leagues might be as short as any of these these other prospects we're talking about in top 10 as well. And he, it matches really well with that core group of guys that they're building uh, the rebuild around. Now, you might also say to yourself, well, what about Shed Long? He's going to be the second baseman. Two things I have to say about that. Number one, Shed Long was acquired not just for his ability to play second base. They weren't sure he could every day, but for his versatility. He was always going to be a guy that can play some second base, play some third base, and play some left field um, but you'll find a way to get him on the field for his bat so that doesn't change if you draft Nick Gonzalez he's going to be your long term everyday second baseman Shed Long is going to have to continue to work at those other positions and make himself versatile number two don't ever think that way baseball is way too flighty and uncertain to ever think that far ahead You've heard me talk about this in terms of football as well, but it's a little bit easier to do in the game of football. But in baseball, you never know what's going to happen. I mean, Shed Long is far from a sure thing, even with the bat. 
And it, it may take Nick Gonzalez three years to make the major leagues. Who knows what could happen between now and then. And then guys get more expensive and they hit arbitration years. You always want to stack talent in baseball, regardless of what you think you have at that position for however long into the future you may think you have it. So anyway, that's Nick Gonzalez. And what's happening though in the last week to 10 days is he starting to move up beyond the Mariners' reach. In particular, he's being tied to the Kansas City Royals. Um, that they were originally looking high school. They were attached to Zach Veen very heavily. Um, maybe this has to do with, with finding out about some signability issues. Maybe Veen is tempted to go to college uh, or, or teams are looking more for high floors and sure things in this draft because of the abbreviated nature of it. Not sure. Um, but it seems more and more likely now as we get closer to the draft that Gonzalez might not even be a choice for the Mariners at six. Which makes either of these next two gentlemen more possible because it would push one of them down. And now we're talking college arms. The first one I want to talk about is Max Meyer. University of Minnesota. He is an undersized power pitcher. Again, this is a guy that is kind of why I wanted to do this and go over some of these prospects because if if you roll into draft day and you, and you don't follow this stuff closely and you see that the Mariners draft a guy with the number six pick overall that's a starting pitcher and he's barely six feet tall and weighs 185 pounds, not exactly your typical build of an ace. It... And it may cause some to raise eyebrows, may cause you to be skeptical. Um, However, in this part of the country, we all know Tim Lincecum. We saw him grow up. We saw him become a star in Bellevue. We saw him go on and become uh, a multiple Cy Young Award winner with the San Francisco Giants. Um, As someone who was even more diminutive than Max Meyer. Um, but he, Max Meyer does not throw like a guy who's six foot and 185 pounds. And that's what makes him such a dynamic prospect. Um, he started out as a closer for the Gophers. Kind of, that makes more sense, right? Fits more of that mold. But they moved him into the rotation because they had a need. And that's where he really blossomed. 148 innings pitched in his uh, career as a Gopher. Only 35 earned runs, 41 walks, 187 strikeouts in those 148 innings pitched. Only allowed seven home runs. Baseball America today um, had him as the Mariners pick at number six. Um, He often sits 95 to 97 miles an hour with that fastball. Routinely sits in that range. Was clocked at 98 in the ninth inning of a start. And that kind of goes directly to show you that, hey, maybe his size, stature um, is overblown a little bit. Hitting 98 in the ninth inning, he's got that kind of stamina. He's also been clocked at 100 miles an hour in games. Um, And he's not just a one-trick pony. One scouting service says he has the best slider in the entire draft. He also has a very promising changeup as well. And so here's the thing about Meyer. You draft him at number six, you're going to give him every opportunity to be a starting pitcher until he proves that he can't. So his ceiling is number two starter, maybe. Definitely a top of the rotation, dynamic starting pitcher. 
that can pitch every fifth day for you. You add them to that mix. Logan Gilbert, Justice Sheffield, some of the other guys. His floor, though, is if you decide at some point that he's not going to be a guy that can give you 180 innings, 200 innings a year as a starter. As you move him to the bullpen, you, you put him on the Edwin Diaz program, and he becomes a dominant closer for you. And so that's the exciting thing about Max Meyer. If you have concerns about his size, well, you shouldn't, because if he fails as a starter, you're talking about a big-time closer. And, and he doesn't even have to fail as a starter to get there. If Max Meyer's the pick and he gets into the system and all these other guys the Mariners have taken in the last couple of years and developed, and Gilbert, Sheffield, and Justin Dunn, and then the three that they drafted last year, George Kirby and Brandon Williamson, Isaiah Campbell, and Sam Carlson comes back from Tommy John. He's fully healthy now, and he comes. Maybe there's not a spot in the rotation, and what makes the most sense is to move this guy to the bullpen, in which case it fast-tracks his timeline. And now you're talking about there's your dominant closer long-term. You start him out as a starter, but the opportunity would be there when this team is ready to win uh, to move him to the bullpen if you wanted to. So that's Max Meyer. Number three, and the guy that Fangraphs today has as the Mariners pick at number six, and up until about the last week wasn't even available at six in any mock draft that you would find, is Emerson Hancock. At one time was in the discussion to be the first overall pick in this draft, but then in in his four starts in this COVID-shortened season, um, he was inconsistent. Uh, 3.75 ERA in his four starts just didn't look like his dominant self. So there's some questions about him. Uh, but he looks more like the part of an ace and, and the type of pitcher you expect to find at the top of drafts coming out of college. 6'4", 213 pounds. 192 innings pitched at Georgia. 74 earned runs. 55 walks. 206 strikeouts. Fastball again in the 95-97 range up to 99. Good grades on his slider, curve, and changeup. And so the Mariners draft history from the last two years show that they love that type of pitcher. This guy fits exactly that mold that they've drafted the last two years going back to Logan Gilbert in 2018. Big, strong, college, experienced starting pitchers with a four-pitch mix. So it would be interesting to see if Meyer and Hancock are both on the board at six, which direction they would go. History, recent history, would suggest Hancock fits their mold. But they may see Meyer as a, as a guy that's a little bit more versatile and a little bit more dynamic. So those are the three to really focus on. Nick Gonzalez, Max Meyer, Emerson Hancock. Um, There's almost zero chance that all three of those will be taken in the first five picks. If they are, then we're talking about an Austin Martin or somebody falling uh, that would be just as exciting. We'll look at at some of those options um, next week. Some of the kind of dark horse candidates, two or three guys that could sneak in and become uh, one of their picks. So again, that draft is set for June 10th, um, one day. It's a one day only thing. Usually um, usually they split it up uh, and it goes over three days, but because it's only five rounds this year, it's all going to happen in one day. So that's coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, let's move on to football now. And uh, I wanted to give some grades, uh, my off-season grades to the Seahawks because it, for the most part, 
seems like the offseason is wrapped up. The signing the other day of Carlos Hyde, I think, kind of represents one of the, the last things that we knew that they were in the market for. They wanted to add a veteran running back. They looked at Isaiah Crowell early in the process. Maybe they feel like he's just not ready to come back off of that serious leg injury from a year ago. Um, and then uh, it really started to ramp up last week. They uh, had targeted Devonta Freeman. Um, and then when he turned down multiple offers from them, uh, they turned quickly to Carlos Hyde and offered him the same deal. Um, that just kind of feels like that's about it. Um, that may change with the Quentin Dunbar situation. We'll get into that a little bit in a minute. Um, but as much as we would like to think that there are other big moves on the horizon, um, and there still may be, um, it seems like they're they're kind of in bargain basement buying uh, mode right now and just kind of being conservative and, uh, and trying to add some value. Um, at least until we get into training camp and they see where they stand in certain position groups. But what I want to do is break it down and look at offense versus defense and then give the team an overall grade. And basically, this is a grade for John Schneider. What kind of offseason uh, I think he's had. Um, again, on offense, I think they're pretty much done uh, with that Carlos Hyde signing. I don't see them really adding anything else. There's, there's been a lot of buzz this week about uh, the possibility of Antonio Brown because Russell Wilson has been campaigning for that. I don't see Schneider doing that. There is a chance still that if Josh Gordon uh, is reinstated by the league, that he would come back for another shot with the Seahawks. And in fact, I th- I would expect that. If Josh Gordon is, is reinstated uh, by the league this offseason, um, he still lives in Seattle. He still trains uh, with guys from the Seahawks. He talks glowingly about the organization. Um, I think that uh, they talk glowingly about him. Um, I would expect him to re-sign and be given a shot to make this roster once again. Um, but other than that, I think they're done. Overall, the things I like about the offseason on offense, I actually like most of what they did on the offensive line in free agency. Um, and in the draft, adding Damian Lewis, a guy who is a day one starter, looks like a long-term starter uh, with a Pro Bowl ceiling. Um, I think he's a huge upgrade over what they had there a more complete player than DJ Fluker was. Um, I like uh, Brandon Shell as a low-cost alternative uh, to Jermaine Effetti. Grades out slightly better across the board, um, particularly, though, in in drawing penalties and also in pass protection. I also like the steadiness of BJ Finney and how he grades out and how he looked last year, um, stepping in for Marquise Pouncey in Pittsburgh as a starting center and how he grades out in pass blocking. I like the idea of adding guys that are better in pass protection as Russell Wilson gets older, as he's as he gets better and he's improved so much in the last few years at surveying, uh, staying in the pocket, managing the pocket. Uh, he's gotten less mobile. Um, he's less inclined to run. So he's going to be more of a pocket passer with each passing year as he gets older. So let's build a line that can protect him. John Schneider talked about that specifically this offseason, and he claims that the exact offensive lineman that they targeted and wanted as part of this plan, they got. So I I see it. I get it. I like that part of it. What I don't like is how much money they gave to Cedric Ogbui um, as a swing tackle and a guy that can play big tight end. Um, He's going to be hard-pressed to make make the roster, but if he does, he's going to count about $2.5 million against the salary cap. Um... 
And I don't like the fact that they missed an opportunity to add a young tackle in this draft. I would have liked to seen them add a tackle at some point in the draft because I think what they've set themselves up for is potentially in 2021 having to look for two tackles. If Brandon Shell isn't good enough and Dwayne Brown either father time catches up with him or he decides to retire, the Seahawks could be behind the eight ball and really stuck looking for a tackle in 2021. Um, I wanted to see them add something more dynamic from that historically deep wide receiver class in the draft. They didn't, although I think Freddie Swain in the sixth round, uh, the more I watch him, the more I like him. And I actually, as much as I like John Ursua, um, there's some redundancy there. And I think Swain has more upside and I, I could see him beating out Ursua to make the team as a slot receiver return guy. I really like him. Um, but I thought they could have tapped into the higher, uh, more dynamic kind of the meat of that wide receiver group higher in the draft. But I thought Philip Dorsett uh, was a really solid value, cheap signing for the veteran minimum as well to give him another deep threat. At tight end, love Greg Olson, don't like the price tag. And so I think that's one of those those classic moves where you can you can hate it and love it at the same time. Uh, but I do think he's going to make a big impact and, and maybe even a big enough impact as a, as a safety blanket for Russell Wilson that um, that we might look back on it and go, okay, he was worth $7 million. Uh, and then the more I look at it, the more I like Colby Parkinson as a long-term weapon for Russell Wilson. Uh, so I don't mind drafting him, him there, even though they had Olson and Disley and Luke Wilson and Jacob Hollister in the fold. Um, at running back, I'm confused. Um, they add DJ Dallas in the fourth round. Didn't know much about him, but I really like him. Um, yet they don't trust him enough or Travis Homer for the depth that they need, given that uh, we don't know how long it's going to take for Rashad Penny to come back fully from his ACL injury. And so they go and get Carlos Hyde, who I like, and I've talked about him on this podcast as a perfect fit, as that veteran that they needed to hedge against injury, but not for $3 million with a chance to earn $4 million. That tells me he's going to play, he's going to play a lot, and Dallas and Homer aren't. Again, I like Hyde. He had a thousand yards rushing last year in Houston playing on a bad shoulder. He's had that shoulder cleaned up. He's expected to be fully ready by training camp. Average 4.4 yards a carry. And he's just, they didn't throw him the ball much in Houston. That was more Lamar Miller's role. But he can catch the ball. He can catch the ball quite well. He's just three years removed from in San Francisco catching 59 balls out of the backfield for the 49ers. Um, But that's just, that's just too much money. I think there were some other guys out there they could have signed um, for that. Um, quarterback, uh, re-signing Geno Smith was absolutely the right move. It was a no-brainer, and I love the uh, free agency signing after the draft of Anthony Gordon. I just hope they're committed to keeping and developing him. It's time that they make that. They just bite the bullet and make that commitment. Um, overall, I give the offensive grade of what Schneider did this offseason a a solid C right down the middle. There's things I like, but I thought they missed opportunities to add that higher-end wide receiver in the draft. They spent too much on Ogbui. They spent too much on Hyde. They spent too much on Olsen, although I like the Olsen move. And they ignored tackle in the draft. Russell Wilson called out for them to add superstars, and they didn't. I mean, Olsen's the only player that's even comes close to that level 
And when I say comes close, it's still not really very close at all. So I give Schneider a C for what he did on offense. I thought there were some solid moves. You could justify every single one of them. But there were some cost issues. Um, and, um, and I think there were some missed opportunities. On defense, things I like. I really like bringing back Jaron Reed. I think we're going to see more of the 2018 Jaron Reed than we did the 2019 Jaron Reed. I love how they double-dipped at edge in the draft. I think both those guys are going to be a big part of the future. I like the Mayoa signing. I think it could prove to be as impactful as the Chris Clemens signing. I talked about that on a past episode, how they match up in um, size and age and career accomplishments by the time they came back to Seattle. And then in that role, how they thrived after that. I think Mayo could certainly do that. I certainly think the Seahawks are banking on that. And that might explain um, some of the other moves not happening that we all wanted to happen. Um, and that, that falls in the category of things I don't like. I mean, obviously, we wanted to see them add a more dynamic, established veteran edge. Um, the reality is they like their guys more than you do. When when. When you or I look at their roster and say, oh, it's really lacking a Clowney or an Everson Griffin, um, I think they would disagree with you. I think they would say, we really like the guys that, that we have. We think Rasheem Green is going to be a star in his third year, a breakout star. We think LJ Collier is going to turn into a really solid base five technique end. And we think both those guys are going to contribute on passing downs on the interior. We think Mayo is going to break out like Clemens did in 2010. I think they feel better about those guys. They think Daryl Taylor is going to give them starter reps as a rookie. And that Alton Robinson is going to turn into an 8-10 to 10 sack guy as a rotational end as well. Um, but this is a team in Super Bowl mode. They should be. Because they're in a window now with an aging quarterback in his prime. And I feel like they needed to do more. I wanted to be sitting here on May 27th feeling really good about their defensive line. I can talk myself into it, but that's the problem. We shouldn't have to be talking ourselves into it. I think Schneider failed to get that known quantity. I think they completely misjudged the clowning situation. And for whatever reason, they didn't even consider Everson Griffin, despite his productivity, despite his past connections to Pete Carroll, despite the reported interest from Griffin. Um, They still haven't added that veteran tackle either. There's been talk of Snacks Harrison or Mike Daniels or even bringing Brandon Meebane back. Again, this may just come down to they, they might feel better about Brian Monet and Demarcus Christmas and Naz Jones coming off a, a, a year spent on injured reserve. They might feel better about those guys than you or I do. Um, but that's, that's an unknown, and I can't grade that. That's an assumption. It's just not tangible enough. Um, it just, with all the attention paid to the defensive line and all those moves, and I haven't mentioned Bruce Irvin yet because now I, based on some recent comments from him, I consider him in the linebacker category now, but it still feels like a job yet to be completed, even though they've made a bunch of moves in that regard. At linebacker, I do love the Jordan Brooks draft pick. I think he's going to be a star. And 
I like the idea, the addition of Irvin. Um, love it, actually. I think he's at that point in his career where, you know, he's he just he knows who he is, and um, and he's developed to the point that he's just a real savvy pro now. Um, and he wanted desperately to, to be back here. But that causes me to question, A, how much money they gave him. It was a 33% raise over what he was making last year in Carolina. I don't know what, what would justify that, especially given how badly he said on the record he wanted to come back here. And also, why is K.J. Wright still on this team? At that cap hit and at that position, Bruce Irvin just came out and said, here's what they want me to do. On first and second down, they want me to play weak side backer. And then on third down, rush the passer. Well, then where's K.J. Wright going to go? They've already said Jordan Brooks may play the weak side as well. Is K.J. going to be your strong side backer? And then you're holding back Cody Barton's development? It just doesn't make sense right now. Maybe they're just keeping K.J. on the roster because of just to honor him because of his career and everything he's done for the organization and what a great Seahawk he's been. But usually when you want to take care of those guys, you release them early in the process so that they can find other opportunities. Um, there is some speculation also that he's going to retire and that now is just not the time to do that. That'll be done closer to the season. We'll see. Um, <laughs> it, w- it would have been easy to give the defense an incomplete grade, but that wouldn't be very fun, would it? Um, in the secondary, I thought the Dunbar acquisition was genius. Cost very little, huge upgrade over Trey Flowers, but also gave you the depth of having Flowers there now. They haven't had that kind of depth in the last few years. You know, the drop-off to Nico Thorpe and Akeem King was pretty massive. Um, he will have a major impact on the defense. However... <laughs> He needs to deal with this legal situation. And if he's charged and the team is ultimately forced to move on from him, obviously it would dramatically lower this grade because then we're talking about a paper-thin cornerback group again where they're relying too much on flowers and then they got to go out and acquire someone else at that point. Um, but for now, this grade is based on the assumption he'll be cleared because I do think he will. I think the uh, quote-unquote evidence against him is extremely sketchy. His lawyer paints... Um, a picture of a, a, a really tough case to prosecute and um, uh, I would expect charges to be dropped at some point. Uh, so overall in defense, I give him a C plus. I think the Dunbar move, if he's on the field, cannot be overstated. I like that they, they really focused on edge in the draft. But I think there was a missed opportunity to add a defensive tackle in the draft, and they haven't added one through veteran free agency either. I think they failed to land that established vet, stud, star uh, Leo that Pete Carroll talked about at the Combine as a priority. Um, And I'm confused about what they're doing at linebacker. So C+. So the overall grade's a C. I mean, I could talk myself into a B or B minus, but I think that would be just looking through rose-colored glasses. One of the big issues I have with this offseason is how very little trust the team seems to show in young players now. And I go back to the running back situation. Travis Homer really looked good when he had to play at the end of last year and in the playoffs when there were all those injuries in the running back room. 
he's certainly not an every down back, but he looks more than capable. And then they spent a fourth round draft pick on DJ Dallas when there were some other needs that could have been addressed there with real quality players. And they could have, there were guys that went undrafted that I've talked about on this podcast that I really like guys like Rico Dowdle and Javon League. But they thought enough of Dallas to take him in the fourth round, but they don't think enough of him to contribute as a rookie. They're going to go pay $4 million potentially for Carlos Hyde. Um, you know, we saw that with Marquise Blair last year. They spent a second round pick on him and then he only got on the field when there was an injury and then they didn't trust him down the stretch to play, even though he looked like a playmaker, looked like a guy that despite his mistakes from time to time um, could really make an impact. This is not how Pete Carroll and John Schneider built this team. And sure, you can say that was out of necessity back then. When you're building something, you're not, you have less fear. Well, I think, I think they've lost that attitude and mindset. And and they play it safe a little too much. And maybe that's because John Schneider was burned by the Harvin deal and to some extent the, the Graham deal, although that was self-inflicted. The Kerry Williams signing. I'd hate to think that these guys have, have lost their courage for making um, moves that might be a little bit more high risk yet high reward. Because that's what made them great in the first place. Um, this offseason, th- there's there's even more examples of not trusting the young guys. You know, look what they had at guard heading into the season. Um, even if you take Fluker out of the out of the equation, because I think Lewis is an upgrade there and was a was a great draft pick, might prove to be the best pick of this draft for the Seahawks. But they had all those other young guards. They had Phil Haynes, who they felt so good about, even though he was injured last year. Jermarco Jones, who looked like a revelation moving to guard from tackle. Jordan Roos, who they continue to bring back year after year after year. Ethan Posick, who was a second-round pick three years ago. But you think so little of those four players that you bring Mike Upati back again at his age, with his injury history? There were moments last year he looked like the all-pro Mikey Potty, but not very many of them. So I don't get that part of it, and that impacts the grade. The, the, this grade could still be improved. Clowney wasn't acquired last year until the week of the opener. Schneider could still have something up his sleeve, or he could pounce on the right veteran cut later in the offseason. But for now, in an offseason that I said was crucial... Uh, it seems pretty clear that Schneider didn't do enough to make it obvious that this team's back in Super Bowl contention. Again, you can talk yourself into it. You can make an argument that they are a Super Bowl contender. But man, there's a lot of ifs. And 80% of those ifs would have to come to fruition for that to happen. And so in a year that started out, remember a year ago when we were looking ahead to 2020, we were talking about 11 draft picks and $80 million in cap space. Um, we thought we they could put the finishing touches on a Super Bowl team. It doesn't feel that way. This feels, once again, just like the last two or three seasons have, like a team that could go 14-2, and two, but they could also go 8-8 eight and eight or 9-7. and seven. 
We shall see. Um, I wanted to address, I thought there was a really cool question that was posed on Twitter this week. I'm sorry I didn't write it down. I don't remember who came up with it. It was a cool idea. Oh, it was a pro football focus. And they posed the question to all football fans, which retired player would you love to see come back from your uh, and be added to your team? And, and obviously the assumption here is if you could take someone from their prime and transport them back onto this team. And it created a lot of really cool debate among Seahawks fans. Um in my Twitter timeline, Walter Jones was an obvious popular choice up front, but he wasn't for me. And here's why, because in this exercise, if you're going to take someone who was retired, I'm not just talking about your favorite player, but uh, you're going to take someone who's retired and add them to your team. You want someone who's going to improve the team, someone who's going to make a dramatic improvement at a position of need. Dwayne Brown's pretty solid left tackle. Former All-Pro. Obviously, he's on the downside of his career. But it's he's not the problem right now. Would you love Walter Jones in his prime on this team? Sure. But you could you could play around with the rules, I suppose, and say, oh, bring Walter Jones back and move Dwayne Brown to right tackle. Sure, that'd be great. But not, that's not how I vision, envision this thing working. Um, other suggestions I saw were Marcus Trufant. I love the guy. Go Cougs. He was a solid corner, not a great corner. Um, don't think he'd be an upgrade over a Dunbar or a Shaq Griffin. Um, Steve Hutchinson was another obvious one. Put him next to Dwayne Brown over there. Um, you can imagine the security blanket that Steve Largent would provide for Russell Wilson, right? Ricky Waters in his prime would certainly help that running back room and be a real compliment to Chris Carson. Um, But I look at, still, pass rush, defensive line. How do we impact the passer? How do you make the most dramatic impact on that front line? I thought about Jacob Green in his prime, even Patrick Kearney, even though he was kind of a short-term Seahawk. But for me, 100% hands down, the guy that I would bring back from the past to be on this team and improve it, and you go back to my grades, would make them a Super Bowl contender? Cortez Kennedy. Cortez Kennedy in his prime doesn't play edge, but he would make all those guys so much better. If you put Cortez Kennedy on the interior of that line next to Jaron Reed, he's going to be double teamed on every single play. He was Aaron Donald before Aaron Donald was, but makes that kind of impact on a game, collapsing the pocket, being just a menace from the interior. Now, all of a sudden, you got all those other guys running free, coming off the edge with one-on-one blocking. Um, Cortez Kennedy would be a lot of fun to watch in his prime in a Pete Carroll defense. And then there was another uh, really cool subject that was brought up on Twitter this week, and it, and it even got... Uh, enough traction that um, Around the Horn tackled it and Tony Reale brought it up and they, they talked about it among some of those sports writers and got me thinking. I'm, you know I'm a huge music fan. You've heard me talk about it. You've heard me talk about it with Bill Alvstad on this podcast and also uh, on their Seahawks Playbook podcast. Uh, it's a big part of my life. And you know that I'm, I'm a hard rock fan for the most part. I grew up in the 80s with all the hair bands and all of that. Um, but I also love modern bands. I listen to... Uh, 
a lot of modern, currently relevant hard rock bands, Breaking Benjamin and Hailstorm and Alter Bridge and Shinedown, Three Days Grace and bands like that. So when it comes to discussions of the greatest rock band of all time, you see those lists all the time. Um, they're pretty heavily dominated by British bands. And not just British bands, but European bands. Right? Zeppelin, Beatles, Stones, ACDC, U2. But the question was posed, who is the greatest American-born rock band? And I wanted to tackle this. Because I know that my answer differs from almost everyone else's. And I get, first of all, that so much of any debate about music is not only highly emotional and obviously subject, sub, su, <laughs> excuse me, uh, that was first dry mouth, stumbling over the word subjective, and then a little bit of jogger's cough went for a run this morning. So um, I'm not even going to edit that out. We're just going to let that fly. It's an emotional subject and it's a subjective subject and you can't convince people logically. It's very much like sports. But it's also full of recency bias. And it has a lot to do with your age, right? Someone who's 25 years old, you're never going to convince them that Van Halen is the greatest American rock band because they're going to see them as classic rock, just some old, you know, your dad's or grandpa's rock band. So many, because of that, so many votes for Nirvana. And it made me want to punch myself in the face multiple times as hard as I could. Here's what I'll say about Nirvana. And Tony Reale even responded to me on Twitter and agreed with me. It's kind of cool. It's one of the highlights of my week. The other one being on John Taffer's podcast. That was kind of cool. Check out his latest episode if you want to listen to he and I talk about the restaurant industry and in the midst of this pandemic a little bit. That was kind of neat. Um, Here's the thing with Nirvana. Okay. Nevermind is one of the great rock albums of all time. It's phenomenal. It's fantastic. It's hard. It's dirty. And and by dirty, I don't mean profane. I mean, just just that, you know, grunge was such a great name for the genre because it was just dirty, crunchy, muddy sounding, distorted guitars. Um, no background vocals. You know, they got rid of the big choruses. It was all very straightforward, but it was also very melodic. It was almost more punk rock than it was the rock that we came to know rock to be in the 80s. But here's the thing about Nirvana. Very short shelf life. And I think their legend has grown partly because Kurt Cobain died. And so there's a, it's their era has, or their legacy has been romanticized by the, the, and enhanced by what could have been. And also by that, the tortured genius kind of idea that this guy's brain was so fantastical and insanely talented that it ultimately also drove him to his destruction because he just couldn't. He couldn't manage all of his creative thoughts and and balance them with with who he was as a person. We don't know 
if Nirvana would have gone on to make three or four crappy albums like a lot of other bands from that era did. 10 by Pearl Jam, one of the great rock albums of all time. In my opinion, the reason I'm not a huge Pearl Jam fan now is because of what they did after that. They went on to make a bunch of mediocre garbage and have been living off of 10. I know there's there's a very passionate fan base that loves everything that they do. But then it, it brings you to this definition of greatest. The question is, who is the greatest American rock band? Nirvana's great for what they did for a very short time. Pearl Jam's great. There were also suggestions for Aerosmith, Van Halen, Foo Fighters, um, Tom Petty, a lot of REM votes. I barely consider them rock. Same with Eagles. I think they're more of a... I would almost consider the Eagles a country band. Um, but again, it's that, it's that it gets down to great versus greatest. Okay? Aerosmith's a great band. One of the all-time great bands. Deserving of Hall of Fame notoriety. And what they did mixing rap and rock together is something that still impacts music today and had a long-lasting legacy. But their style of music and what they were doing wasn't unique at the time, mixing blues and rock. But you could make a stronger argument for them being the greatest American rock band of all time because of the influence they had when they got together with Run DMC and how that changed the genre. So this brings me to my criteria. I think you have to look at everything. It's not just who you like, who you think makes good music. You're talking about the greatest? Okay? Here's another example. We all just watched The Last Dance. Amazing. Regardless of whether you feel it was a true documentary or whether it was just a, you know, a a Michael Jordan biopic. Doesn't matter. But here's a great analogy. Scotty Pittman, everybody agrees, is a great basketball player. One of the great basketball players of all time. But is he even in the conversation of being the greatest of all time? There's a difference. Dirk Nowitzki comes to mind. Great basketball player. Greatest of all time? No. There's a difference. We're talking about the greatest band of all time. So I think you need to combine everything look at all categories. Sales. How many records do they sell? Longevity. How long were they around? How long were they relevant? How long did that window of great sales last? And when I talk sales, I don't just mean album sales. I mean, did they sell out arenas? Did they tour for decades still able to sell out arenas? And then what kind of influence did they have on the genre, on other bands that followed them? What kind of mark did they make? How often were they imitated or copied? Aerosmith gets close on that. Van Halen gets close on that because of the the style that Eddie Van Halen played. I mean, we still hear that today. We certainly heard it permeate all the other bands at that time. Just his style of play. I mean, you have to look at hits and record sales. 
We're talking about achievements. We're talking about accomplishments. Okay? This is why, again, I get back to why Nirvana can't be in this conversation. The fact that they didn't get a chance to have that kind of longevity because Kurt Cobain killed himself doesn't disqualify them from having to meet that criteria. And somebody somebody on Twitter tried to make the case that uh, hands down, there was no debate. Nirvana is the greatest American band of all time and that they have had longevity because Nevermind has stood up. And it just falls flat for me. The only thing Nirvana did differently was what? They wore dirty jeans and ratty sweaters, didn't comb their hair, and trash their instruments. For me, when you take all of this into account, the greatest American rock band is Kiss by every single criteria. You look at sales. According to the RIAA, the Recording Industry Association of America, KISS has achieved more gold record albums than any American band in history. They have 30 gold albums. Gold is 500,000, platinum is a million sales. 30 gold albums. Some of these other bands we're talking about haven't even done 30 albums. Period. 30 gold albums, most ever, from any American band. 14 of those went platinum, 4 of them went multi-platinum. At one point, all four members of the band did their own solo album, and all four of those went platinum. Or, I'm sorry, all four of those went gold. Concert Tickets, one of the highest grossing touring bands of all time. They've been selling out arenas since 1977, even through their down periods, even when they took the makeup off. Even their farewell tour which has now been interrupted as so many tours are, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, was projected to gross over $200 million, even though they haven't had a relative hit uh, in 15 years, even though they're in their 70s now, they still draw. And you talk about influence. Were they the first to put on stage makeup? No. But what they did with not only the costumes and the makeup and the staging and the lighting and the pyrotechnics had never been done before to that scale and has spawned decades of imitators across genres. Garth Brooks copied them. Garth Brooks, who in his heyday put on a stage show that looked very much like a Kiss show, that was on purpose. He is an admitted Kiss fan uh, even covered Hard Luck Woman on one of his albums or on a on a compilation album and uh, and said that they influenced his live shows. What Motley Crue did on their first farewell, farewell tour and will do again uh, when they're able to launch that stadium tour um, is ripped off from Kiss. So many bands have ripped off what they do from what Kiss did. Uh, they also changed how bands are marketed. What they did in the world of band-related merchandise to this day has never been equaled by anyone else. Uh, and then you talk about longevity. 40-plus years later, they're still the newest, um, the latest tour is expected to gross over $200 million. Um, critics and people listening right now who disagree with me probably do because they say their music is basic. 
Uh, but not only is that subjective, but since when is that a bad thing? The Beatles had simple songs become huge hits for them. ACDC is known for being the band that built a legacy around four guitar chords. Pop music today relies on pre-recorded tracks and samples from other bands who had other hits. Pop music today will have two lines of lyrics repeated over and over for the entirety of the song. Good songs are catchy. Catchy songs sell. Sales equals success. And Kiss was great at writing songs for a period of over 20 years. And as is the case with most good bands, let alone great ones, their best material isn't the stuff that you heard on the radio. It's not the stuff on their greatest hits albums. It's the simple and catchy stuff that sells and appeals to radio and you listen to. But dig deeper on their albums and that's where their best stuff is. I mean, you think they're simple? Paul Stanley graduated from the Juilliard School of Music. I mean, he was writing their songs around music theory and can actually read music and compose music. These guys are better musicians than you think they are. It was just covered up with all this other stuff and maybe that's why you don't like them. Um, they remind me of Journey in, in, in that sense also. A lot of people don't like Journey because all they think of is open arms and faithfully and they think they're a sappy, um, ballad, girly Valentine's Day band. But that was just unfortunately what they became known for because those were their biggest hits. But the depth of their catalog is so fantastic. If they hadn't have broken up a little too soon, they could have been in this conversation. But when you, when you look at everything, I'll put it this way. You can disagree with me, but you can't find another band that is as accomplished. An American band that's as accomplished in all of those areas completely across the board as Kiss. You just can't. You absolutely cannot. So, I wanted to give you my thoughts on that. I would go out with some Kiss, um, but I'd be breaking some laws there, and I don't want to do that. So we're going to wrap this thing up. Uh, it was great to be able to talk about some baseball and football. Again, next week we'll talk more about the draft as we'll be a week away then. Talk about some of the other um, other prospects who may sneak in. Also, as you get within that last week of the draft, sometimes um, some of the better reporters in the industry start to get actual um, sourced material and whispers and they, and they get an idea um, and their thumb on the pulse of what might be happening and some things change at the last minute. So we'll get some of that and uh, we'll we'll talk mostly about Mariner baseball next week. Um, until then, please follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. Um, I love the interaction. It's been a lifeline for me while I'm stuck at home. Um, as far as that goes, I hope you're all staying healthy and staying sane. Uh, I had thought that in King County, we were going to get back to work next week. And in fact, there were plans for us to do so. Um, but some of the new case numbers just aren't anywhere close to where they need to be to advance King County to phase two. Um, we had a, a conference call with our CEO again yesterday, and it sounds like mid to late June at the earliest. Um, and so I'm stuck at home for a little while longer. So thank you all for um, helping provide me with some of that interaction to, to kind of get me through this. And uh, also for listening to the to the podcast. If you don't subscribe, please hit that subscribe button so you get notification of new episodes as they are posted. Also, please hit the like button um, or 
whichever podcast platform you use to listen to this, if you could leave me a rating, if you like what we do here, um, that would be fantastic and really help with uh, podcast positioning on those platforms for me. Until then, again, Seahawks forever on Twitter. Um, and we'll see you next week. Thanks again so much for listening to the Dan Cave. My name is Dan Viennes. As always, go Mariners, go Seahawks, and go Cougs. Don't forget about that.